Today's guest, Karen Russell, has been wildly hailed as a rising star in the next generation of great writers. She was honored as one of the New Yorker's 20 best writers under the age of 40, as one of Granta Magazine's best young American novelists, as one of the National Book Foundation's five best writers under the age of 35. Her first collection of stories, St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves, came out shortly after she graduated from Columbia University's MFA program and was named a Best Book of the Year by the Chicago Tribune, Los Angeles Times, and the San Francisco Chronicle. Last year, Karen Russell's debut novel, Swamplandia, was nominated, along with books by David Foster Wallace and Dennis Johnson, for the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction. We are pleased to have Karen Russell on Between the Covers today to talk about her latest short story collection, Vampires in the Lemon Grove, a book NPR described as one of the most innovative, inspired short story collections in the past decade. Welcome to Between the Covers, Karen Russell. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Before we talk about Vampires in the Lemon Grove, I'd like to start with Florida and how it's influenced your work previous to this collection. Can you can you talk a little bit about how it's been a psychic tableau for you and, <laughs> and, and in what you've done prior to this? Yeah, sure. So uh, up until this book, I would say most of my real and uh, imagined life uh, was spent in Florida or some sort of whacked out version of Florida. Um, this novel, Swamplandia, is set in a mythic version of the Everglades. Um, so many of the stories in my first collection wound up being in, you know, kind of Marco Island, Key West, um, uh, vari- variations on, on those places, uh, these sort of like liminal, swampy, watery holes um, with just populated by kind of deranged adolescents, uh, really damaged teenage boys and girls. Um, and I think I, I think for me, growing up in Florida, I think even more than any literary influence, something about um, the matter-of-fact strangeness of that state really had a lasting impact uh, on me and, and primed me to love some of the people like Kafka or Marquez or, uh, you know, Kelly Link, George Saunders, folks who were sort of writing these mashups where fantastical occurrences were happening simultaneously with, you know, more banal Tuesday grocery store reality. Well, in, in a recent interview you did with Chad Harbach, the, the author of Art of Fielding, you mentioned that setting determines what is possible and impossible for a character. Right. And, the, and the reason why I ask you about Florida is it feels like with Vampires in the Lemon Grove, you've made a departure from this this landscape of your childhood that has informed a lot of the work that you've done previous to this. So my curious Curiosity is, what have you discovered or have things popped up from your unconscious that have been different because you're now operating in lands that are less familiar for you, whether it be Japan or the Arctic or New Jersey? Yeah. Um, has that changed the the themes or the tones of your stories because of that? That's such a great question. Um and thank you for researching that interview. I remember being very tipsy for that interview, so I'm glad I said something coherent. Um, sometimes you treat shyness with wine, and you can just overdo that. Um, I uh, I love Psychic Tableau, I think, because it really does speak to the way that there are these landscapes that feel like analogs for certain emotional states. So it, I do think that that likely happened. I don't know that I was always conscious of it, but to move around to these, to do these jumps to different territories, it is liberating. Um, to sort of also try on, in the case of, say, a story like Proving Up, uh, which is set it's these the family of uh, in Nebraska, um, these homesteaders uh, at the turn of the century. And I think 
to try to take on that way of seeing and relating to the world, which is basically an extinct way of seeing and relating to the world. What you, you, there is sort of a new grammar of thought that becomes available to you. Um, well, there were definitely things that, that jumped out to me that felt like new new um, areas of exploration. And, and one of them was uh, a lot of your stories previously feel like they deal with adolescence. And yes, there are stories in, in this collection that deal with adolescence, but you also have stories that are dealing with what happens after you die with, with the story of the presidents right. reincarnated as, as horses. And, um, and then the story of um, the vampires in the lemon grove, which has to do with immortality and monogamy. So we're looking at some very different phases in life in this collection. And I, I was curious if that was linked to leaving behind child, childhood landscapes of, of your own as a writer. Oh, that's such a smart, what a smart insight. You know, I, um, that's, that's funny. I haven't really uh, thought about it in those terms, but I'm sure that that's likely true um, because my own adolescence and childhood are so connected to uh, the swamps and malls of Florida. I mean, that's sort of where those dramas were staged. So I think that that's likely correct, right? That if I was going to write about, you know, a huge departure for me felt like the story of the New Veterans, which it's a middle-aged masseuse in Wisconsin who's treating a soldier who suffers from PTSD. Um, I think it, who knows how that story would have played out had I tried to set it in Florida. Uh, but to move away from the world of references that triggers childhood for me, yeah, I, I do think that then there's some freedom to try to imaginatively inhabit another stage of life, you know, one that I'm actually not at yet, right? Like, what would it really feel like to be, um, you know, sort of heading towards the twilight of your life and to have this encounter with a young sergeant? Well, there always seems to be a pairing of warmth and darkness in in your stories to me. And in this collection, you definitely have that, the magical and the wondrous, but there's also several stories, and the New Veterans being one of them, where it feels like you fully own s stories that are just dead on serious. Yeah. And uh, it's a different tone than what you see in your first collection or Swamplandia, I think. And, and I was interested in that and, and the leaving of Florida also. And I was also just interested in what you found compelling about going full on into the horror, horror genre uh, with yeah. Proving Up and with uh, the, the story of, of Eric Mutis. <laughs> um, yeah, the Scarecrow Boy. Isn't that true? You know, it, that's a funny thing. Thank you for bringing that up because a lot of the work, uh, the editorial work we did was consistency of tone. And I really had to be coaxed in some instances away. My impulse just in life and also in writing is often to like smash a pie on my face and, you know, tell a joke. In, so, in some cases, I think, um, you know, in, in Swamplany in those first stories, I think there is some kind of funny, sad ratio that I was really trying to work out. Um, and, you know, Saunders, who we mentioned, he's such an influence. And I think he does that better than anybody to sort of use the humor to – it's not um, – diffusing the tension at all. It's actually making more poignant whatever the really sad, unbearably sad thing is. But in some cases in this collection, like with the new veterans, you know, it seems so, um, initially it seems so scary not to tell any jokes, right? Not to sort of ventilate some of the tension that was building. Um, but there also it also seemed like the only appropriate register to tell that story in because... Uh, you know, I guess maybe maybe there's like a handful of jokes that that made the cut. I don't I don't even remember now. Um, well, that feels like there's a nice balance between the stories that have a real warm humor, like vampires in the in the lemon grove, yeah. and these other stories which feel um, 
darker and yeah and a first draft of that silkworm girl story so this is a story about um these japanese uh basically these female debt slaves who are incarcerated in a reeling mill and they are turned into actual silkworms and sort of become a part of the factory machinery and in a first draft you know it was a little more cartoony it felt a little closer to the stuff in saint lucy's maybe and um I think at a certain point, it just became clear to me that for the end to have the kind of emotional punch I wanted it, I really was going to take the suffering very seriously. In a story that's already asking a lot of the reader to take, you know, to take seriously or to entertain the possibility that these women could really turn into silkworms, you know, I think something about something about the way that the, what the humor was doing was not in the service of the emotional heart of the story, actually. Um, well, that that story you mentioned, reeling for the empire, where the women turn into silkworms. Yeah. It feels like that is one way you could describe your work as all of it confronting the issue of metamorphosis. And even when you're in your less fantastical stories, just the the setting of adolescence is is one of metamorphosis. Even if you yeah. strip away ma- a magical it element is. to the story, right? Yeah. So, uh, what is it? as a writer for you that brings you back to this idea of metamorphosis in your writing both the magical way and and also the way we change yeah in just real life. the way that selves change i think that uh, it's funny i visited a high school today i did like a writers in the schools visit and i was struck by exactly that you know that age range where it's like some kids they're 8 years old they look like you know little freckly hot dogs some kids they're for you know they they look like construction workers already it's just like hallucinatory you know they have these like franken hands that are mashed onto their tiny bodies and their feet are like gigantic rabbit feet um so it's like i do think there's some kind of sci-fi period that is adolescence where physically and emotionally you are undergoing these profound transformations that are totally seismic day to day everything is changing I also think I'm really attracted to geographies where everything is is unstable. You know, the swamp is like the true uncanny, right? It's sort of, it's neither land nor water. You can't get your bearings there. The tides are always revising it. I love also icy landscapes, I'm sure for the same reason, because there's just the threat that at any moment solid ground is going to melt and stream away. You know, that the sun is just going to cause a total collapse of um, this solid block of ice. So state changes, right? Like phase changes, I think I love. Um, Part of that for sure comes from Florida because the weather is so extreme there. So you have this kind of like cheery, happy hour denial of the fact that at any moment a wave or a hurricane is going to come and and erase the, the territory that you once knew. So I think that when and when we were a kid, we we you know Hurricane Andrew and did destroy our house. So I somehow think that um, experience left a big had some kind of indelible mark on me where it's like no nothing is so stable right structures aren't stable um, personalities aren't stable um, and even in reeling for the empire there isn't just the metamorphosis of the women as they as they get involved in this form of slave right. labor but the period for Japan is also a time when the country is going through this big change yeah I loved I mean I that this to, to set the story there was really exciting for me because it was sort of the what's happening to these women where they're sort of enmeshed in modernity, it's happening to the entire island, you know, during this period. And it, the, I would, again, I think what um, attracted me or what first grabbed me about that story beyond just the the idea of these these f- female revolutionaries in Japan, um, you know, and the, the way that feminist consciousness arises from this, like these terrible factory conditions, was just the, the, 
shocking velocity of that change. So in a single generation, the whole landscape of your world changes. All these structures melt away. Suddenly you're introduced, you're jerked into modernity. And um, Florida, again, I mean, I think that must have had a resonance because when I was growing up, the speed of development, the way that the skyline would change like roughly every five minutes in Florida, you know, you would like come home on your little bike and like another estuary of mangroves had been totally raised to the ground and there was like a condominium there. I think like that that inertia um, was so frightening to me before I really had words for it either, you know. And um, <clears throat> the way that everybody seemed against it, all the adults would complain about it. They would talk about what we were doing to the environment, but no one could put the brakes on it. Um, I mean, that was a real ecological horror story for everybody, you know, growing up in Miami in the 80s. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today with Karen Russell about our new short story collection, Vampires in the Lemon Grove. Karen, let's let our listeners listen to a little bit of the prose from the collection. Do you have something yeah, you want to read? Yeah, I do. And thank you. This, so this is something I never get to read. Um, the, the Seagull Army Descends on Strong Beach, 1979. Um, this is a story about... Uh, this boy now who's growing up on, in a beach community that has been invaded by a mysterious flock of seagulls. Um, now everyone's going to have that song stuck in their head all day. Um, so, The gulls landed in Athertown on July 11, 1979. Clouds of them, in numbers unseen since the ornithologists began keeping records of such things. Scientists all over the country hypothesized about erratic weather patterns and redirected migratory routes. At first, Sullen now barely noticed them. Lost in his thoughts, he dribbled his basketball up the boardwalk, right past the hundreds of gulls on Strong Beach, gulls grouped so thickly that from a distance they looked like snowbanks. Their bodies capped the dunes. If now had looked up, he would have seen a thunderhead of seagulls in the well of the sky, rolling seaward. Instead, he ducked under the dirty turquoise umbrella of the beach grub cart and spent his last dollar on a hamburger. While he struggled to open a packet of yellow mustard, one giant gull swooped in and snatched the patty from its bun with a surgical jerk. Now took two bites of bread and lettuce before he realized what had happened. The gull taunted him wings akimbo on the beach grub umbrella, glugging down the burger, now went on chewing the greasy bread, concluding that this was pretty much par for his recent course. All summer long, since his mother's termination, now had begun to sense that his life had jumped the rails. And then, right at his nadir, he'd agreed to an avant haircut performed by Cousin Steve. Cousin Steve was participating in a correspondence course with a beauty school in Nevada, America, and to pass his radical metamorphosis two course, he decided to dye Nal's head a vivid blue and then razor the front into tentacle-like bangs. Radical, Nal said dryly as Cousin Steve removed the foil. Cousin Steve then had to airmail a snapshot of Nal's ravaged head to the United States desert, 1749 in postage, so that he could get his beauty school diploma. In the photograph, now looks like he is going stoically to his death in the grip of a small blue octopus. This is one of my favorite stories in the collection. I viewed the seagull army descends on strong beach as a companion piece, weirdly, to proving up. And the seagull army, I feel like one of the themes around it is around wanting to live in the moment and be absorbed 
in the moment without self-consciousness, but yeah. the future keeps uh, interfering mm -hmm. in a sense and keeps coming into the into the present. And proving up feels like the opposite in a sense that the present is entirely defined by the future, the people who are waiting for the spring and they're waiting for the rain and they're waiting for their title. And, it, and, and in one respect, it felt like the future really looms over this whole collection when you think about the immortality of the vampires. And then you also think about uh, the barn at the end of our term. How will we be remembered once right. we die? And I, I was wondering if the future loomed over it for you as a writer, having now having expectations as you go and you write a new collection of stories. It's got to feel very different than the first time you wrote a story collection now that you have this audience and, and people who who have certain desires from you as you write. Yeah. Oh, my God. I want to, like, roll a couch in here and we can do therapy sessions weekly. <laughs> that's really <laughs> – that's another amazing insight. It's – I um, I do think that this is a time-haunted collection. I think that there's a lot of dysfunction in the way that that these characters are living in time. Um, so that, that's, that's – uh, really kind of fascinating to me. I, I don't know that I thought about them juxtaposed in that way, but definitely in this Siegel story, there are these cosmic scavengers who are sort of like, you know, um, they're, they're this indiscriminate appetite that's kind of ravaging his present. Um, and and um, the so much of those frontier tales to me, it's just the promise has become a lie. I think Swamplandia, it's a similar, similar story. You know, it's people who have not been able to adapt to a changed circumstance. They're either still living with a deluded attachment to some past dream, you know, or they're, right, they're, they're kind of being attacked by a future that may, will never arrive or hasn't arrived. Um, but I think that's like kind of a universal, you know, I don't, I think that that's all, we're all in that bog together, right? I mean, it's really hard to live in Noonlight. Um, this, the Siegel Army story, what inspired it was this amazing essay by Andre Asiman called Mnemonic Arbitrage that Lord knows if he would even <laughs> care to know that the, I don't think that he ever intended to spawn a weird story about a bunch of supernatural seagulls, but um, he talks about mnemonic arbitrage as being a financial metaphor for what kind of the brain wants to do all the time, which is to trade away the present to live, you know, either in the future or the past. So to experience, you know, like right now I would say, wow, I'm so nostalgic for that excellent interview that I had, you know, with David in Portland, um, just to, to reroute it, to get kind of like an extra hit of pleasure and to buffer yourself from the weirdness of being inside your body in the present moment. Um, with the expectations, I don't know if that was, who knows, right? Maybe that was part of, maybe that was part of why I, I kept writing about these these characters struggle to occupy their present. Um, but I felt like with this collection, there was a lot of joy. It was written sort of over five years. So it wasn't, it's just, it's these stories, um, they've come from different periods too. I think that the toughest time, I pray to God, is done. And that was moving from St. Lucie's to Swamplandia. I think that was probably, if I'm time haunted, the the hardest one because I had been given this excellent opportunity and yet had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself and just, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was not obvious at that point that, uh, you know, a novel would ever kind of come into being. So that was, that was sort of tough. That's um, interesting. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question about uh, genre and its popularity right now, and, yeah. and particularly uh, around... 
a specific phenomenon that I've seen in um, the way we relate to monsters compared to the way they were originally related to, which which connects to your title story. And in the title story, you're, the vampires in the Lemon Grove, the vampires don't bite anymore. And that's <laughs> actually a, a seems to be a big theme in, in cultural consciousness now when we see, for instance, say the TV show True Blood where right. people can drink a synthetic uh, blood and... and uh, assimilate into society or, or twilight where they're going to high school. And, and then in Ben Percy's new novel with werewolves, it's a very similar situation where they're, they're living among us and can take a drug to live with us. Mm-hmm. Whereas originally the vampire was very much other, didn't live in town. He lived outside of yeah, town I... and invoked a different sort of terror. And I, I was curious if you had any thoughts about why we've shifted the place of the vampire or the werewolf within society. So it's so much closer now wearing a sweater vest in the cul-de-sac <laughs> next to us. Right. With a comb over and a sweater vest and just taking its medicine. You know, that's so interesting. It's, it's, and it's been interesting on this to feel kind of part of something that you never, you know, I, when I was writing that story, I think that was like such a lark initially. And it was before kind of this, total cultural saturation of Stephanie Meyer and True Blood and, and these things. Um, but I know that I was really drawn. There's a book I love called The Minotaur Takes a Cigarette Break about this minotaur who's just working as like a line cook in some, you know, southern town, uh, sitting on a bucket smoking, you know, while he works at like the, the you know, grub pit. I think something about, that, to me, what felt resonant about it is just this idea that peop- everybody has monstrous urges and you have to find some way to yeah to live in the world and live in society and um the solutions available are you know some of you i guess you can medicate yourself you can you know that just a lot of temporary fixes seem to exist but um i wonder about that right that, that, that they're not living in exile anymore they're just they're sort of in our midst but they've um muzzled their desires so some something about that right like the idea that there's some kind of uh for sociability's sake um, you know, whatever loneliness comes with denying some essential impulse so that you can be accepted by others, maybe. That's uh, very well put. You you studied under Ben Marcus at Columbia University, and you, you've mentioned before in interviews a piece of advice that he gave you. And uh, if you're going to have something weird, just have one thing be weird. Yeah. What, what does that mean for you? Um. I was writing Ben Marcus stories where everything was insane, right? It was a confetti plosion of whacked out stuff. And, uh, and then it made the world feel frictionless. You know, there weren't any consequences and the characters didn't really have anything to kind of come up against. You know, obstacles felt like holograms. It, so it, was, it wasn't great, right, for narrative um, or for reader's investment, you know. So just have one thing be weird. I think for me, it's sort of like if you're going to alter the universe of, of your fictional world, so let's say you're going to say, yeah, there are these these vampires, but it turns out they don't strictly have to drink the blood. They're in recovery. Okay, well, that's it. So there's not also going to be an ant who's a cat. There are like three moons out of like Murakami style. You know, it's that's – and let's let's really treat that seriously, take that premise seriously as a what if and see what a human personality, which is basically what these, these vampires are really, right? They're sort of like a monogamous couple on the skids. Let's see what, what would happen to them if that were the case. You know, so almost like a science experiment or something, right? Like what if the daughters of werewolves were reeducated – 
okay, it, given that that's the constraint, let's not mess with things anymore. Let's not then introduce a fleet of ghosts and, you know. Um, it's probably what marks something that's literary and genre at the same time versus maybe something that's pure, purely. Maybe, maybe so. I mean, it's tough. I mean, I also think just um, it was helpful for me to, to really think about being a conscious architect of these places and saying, okay, it's true that you could take any freedom, but why are you doing it? You know, or to, to what end in the service of what? So, so that it doesn't just become kind of like, parade of things that I invented or you know like bad dream that I had after Thai food or something like it's it's really kind of I have altered I've made a deliberate you know I've, I've rearranged reality here and I think it's because I myself have a question that I'd like to explore in this environment you know um like uh, Swamplandia so this girl falls in love with the ghost what is that really if you're taken hostage by an apparition or by a story what does that feel like you know and what What's the seduction there? Um, so that to really tr take those questions seriously anyways, if you're going to have one weird thing. I'm curious about your thoughts about gender and sci-fi and fantasy. I, I At least in, on my own and from my perspective, it seems like sci-fi and fantasy traditionally has been the, the domain of boys, at least <laughs> as readers, perhaps. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm curious if you think that's actually true, but it feels like there's a trend going on in this generation in the popular culture, I think of, again, Twilight and Hunger right. Games and, and even Harry Potter, which feels like it's not specific in terms of its popularity among boys or girls. But then also with writers like you and Helen Oyeyemi and, and Kelly Link, uh, that maybe this is a time when that's totally breaking down. Uh, I certainly think with Reeling for the Empire, which is both a, a fantastical story but in a way also is a story about feminism and about the mechanization of, of mm -hmm. women's bodies, mm -hmm. literally, mm -hmm. that you're doing that work. And I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about being a woman doing this and and the reception you received and, and yeah. if you feel like there are trends. It's so regard. funny. You know, I have to say I feel um, a little, I always feel self-conscious answering questions about sci-fi fantasy and genre stuff because I feel kind of out of the game a little bit you know I mean um when I was 14 15 I geeked out on all of that stuff um and in recent years I just haven't like Hunger Games I I don't know I saw one of the movies that but I'm sort of I'm a, I'm a little bit um out of the mix Kelly Link is someone who I love and the books that Small Beer Press does I love and so many of them are women right um I was just raving about After the Apocalypse by Maureen McHugh. I don't mm -hmm. know if you know her work. It's, yeah, I read that. Oh, it's yeah. unbelievable. And that's there's a, a lot of kind of gritty feminist dystopian stuff happening. I was reading some of the Ursula K. Le Guin. I was trying to teach, you know, um, the Omala's story uh, last semester. So, and of course, like Margaret Atwood. So I think those are, you know, people that I feel my work to be in conversation with because I was so influenced by their own writing. Um, but I guess I don't have my finger on the pulse of what the what the young ladies are reading these days. I do feel a little bit out of it. I wonder kind of I do, what, what's interesting is to see people my age or a little bit older, like Juno Diaz or Shabon or Kelly Link, who I suspect we must have had very similar reading histories at some point. So that is neat to see them metabolizing. You can feel, right? Like uh, 
you can feel Ursula in some of Kelly's work. You can feel, you know, Richard Adams or Frank Herbert, or definitely you can feel Tolkien throughout, you know, and in a very explicit way he's referenced in Juno's work. And so to see somebody taking on, you know, the history of the Dominican Republic through the lens of sci-fi, that's exciting. Um, well, let me ask you a, a question now that you bring up Juno Diaz. When the New Yorker did its science fiction issue, they asked a whole bunch of writers, if you could pick one thing from sci-fi that you think should actually be in the literary canon, yeah. what would it be? And, and it's interesting, both Juno Diaz and Jonathan Lethem picked the Samuel Delaney novel Dahlgren. But I, I'd be interested in knowing for you, if does anything come to mind, something that isn't getting the respect that it should. That it really should. And, you know, everyone should read it, even if you don't like sci-fi. Oh, gosh. Can, does it, is it only sci-fi? Can Let's it be fan- sci-fi fantasy? Yeah, I sci-fi mean, fantasy. I do think... I haven't read that. Dog. That Dahlgren book is like marrying a book. That's a big book. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm commitment shy lately. I've been, I've been kind of dragging heel. So I really loved, um, I remember really loving The Mists of Avalon. I don't know if you read that. I haven't. It's beautiful. Um, I really love Dune. That is a classic book. I've been rereading that slowly with awe. I can't believe what he is able to do in that book, what he's synthesizing, just the terrestrial, you know, just um, the, the political, building. religious world building. Yes, the, co- the, entire, the entire cosmos that he sets up um, and the drama of it. And, of course, just the pleasure, right, of any kind of, like, who doesn't want an adolescent to discover that he's got this messianic calling? That's always exciting for outsider dorks. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I love that. I love that book. I, I'm, it's so impressive to me still. Um, you know, I mean, everybody already knows about like the hand Handmaid's Tale, but what a shocking, eye dilating, ferocious, fantastic book. Um, you know, and about and I love sort of like the rage inside that book, because that's not necessarily just in terms of sort of widening our gender stereotypes. Sure. Um, well, you're working on a new novel now about the Dust Bowl. Can yeah. you can you tell us anything in our final minute about uh, what themes you're you're exploring in the book? Oh man, I sound like I transition to Eeyore voice now when I talk <laughs> about it. It's like I'm like, well, I don't know. It's <laughs> I, I, my moment of like the honeymoon is done. I think <laughs> now now we've sort of like entered the long marriage. Um, but I, I, I'm excited. I think some of the same stuff that drew me to the Nebraska story, some of what we were just talking about, the people living dysfunctionally in time and hope turning into delusion, you know, it's a horror story for me about what people can endure. Um, because Is it fantastical? Also? It's, oh, it, yeah, definitely it's fantastical. How could it not be? But it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's, it's a historical fantastical, I guess. Well, it's great having you on Between the Covers, Karen. I love being on Between the Covers, Behind the Covers. Thank you so much. (laughs) We've been talking today with Karen Russell, the author of Vampires in the Lemon Grove. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.